It's good to see all of you this morning. Uh, I hope you're all staying cool these days. Last week, Dave St. Lawrence mentioned the heat. Uh, I got to escape the heat a little bit this week for a few hours Wednesday morning uh, when we uh, drove up Chinook Pass and dropped off our four-year-old Wesley for his uh, first ever overnight backpacking trip with uh, some of my family who are into that kind of thing. And uh, he, it, was about, it was about 30 degrees cooler up there. And it was kind of funny when we arrived, um, he was the only one dressed appropriately in his little hiking boots and jeans and little jacket. Stephanie and I were still in our uh, shorts and flip-flops. But um, he came back in one piece the next day. He, uh, the, the big highlight for him was seeing a marmot uh, apparently marmots whistle. I didn't know that. Uh, so, but he had fun and, uh, that was a, that was a success this week. So anyway, uh, this morning, today, we are continuing our, uh, series through the book of Hebrews. Um, we're over halfway through the book now at this point. I'm going to be in chapter eight of this book. So feel free to, to, uh, turn there on your, your Bibles or your devices. Um, let me just open with a quick word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful morning. Uh, thank you that we can be together and worship you and have community and uh, hear your word. I just pray that these would be your words, not mine, and uh, that you would, you would bless this time and teach us all, Lord, me included. In your good name, amen. So we're going to look at all uh, 13 verses in, in uh, Hebrews 8 this morning, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump right in. Um, it starts in, in verse 1. It says, Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I'll, I'll pause there. Uh, most of the ideas in these first two verses... Uh, the, the writer has said before in some form in the book, but he now kind of explicitly brings them together for the first time. Um, the theme for several chapters now, as we've been uh, talking about, has been Jesus, the fact that Jesus is our high priest. And now the writer brings back an idea that he hasn't mentioned since chapter one, which is that Jesus has sat down at God's right hand. Um, this would have been a really strange thought to these Jewish believers and, and really people of any religion of that day and age because priests never sat down. They were constantly at work, just always over and over again, um, offering up sacrifices and, and trying to appease divine wrath. They couldn't just, they, they couldn't just stop. But this priest had done his work and finished it forever. So no, no further atonement was needed. And where had this high priest sat down? Um, well, not just anywhere. He was seated in the very presence of God. The, the writer uses this word majesty, this great uh, word that was kind of a Jewish way of indirectly describing actually being with God. Um, and it's used, it's used only three times in the New Testament uh, here and back in chapter 1, verse 3, 
and then uh, in the very last verse of Jude. Um, but but this, this high priest, this mediator of ours, is physically with, right now, physically with the, the creator and, and ruler of the universe. He, we, we, are, we are represented in the highest possible place, the most, the most important place, the place where God is. And I would add that although Jesus has sat down, verse 2 also says that he serves in the, in the sanctuary. That is an active verb. So somehow Jesus is seated and he is serving. How, how do we square this circle? Well, Jesus' death on the cross for, for our sin was, was really the ultimate gift that keeps on giving. His, his offering was final and, and yet is continually needed because, well, we are continually sinning. So, so we are blessed by Jesus' sacrifice every single day. And finally, um, and, and this, this phrase is basically a new thought in Hebrews, uh, it says Jesus serves in the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Um, the, the question would have been asked, well, where's your temple? And the, the answer was that their temple was, in a sense, the, the ultimate temple. It, it was the, uh, the, the one that, that all earthly temples only imitated. It was the actual throne room of God. And, and we'll come back to this a little bit more in verse 5, but the, the main idea is that to follow Christ meant that your God was satisfied once and for all with your high priest's work. And, and he was advocating for you right now in the, the courtroom of the King of Kings forever. Pretty amazing stuff. Well, the next two verses, uh, three and four, read, Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. Um, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. What's the writer talking about here? Um, well, he's explaining that the best place for Jesus to serve as high priest isn't here on earth, it's in heaven. The, the, these, these Jewish Christians may have um, been wondering why Jesus can't be physically here with them on earth. Why, why can't Jesus, why is he somewhere else? Why can't he be here with us? Um, well, the job of every high priest was to, to offer up something, to present something to God, and what exactly does Jesus offer? What, what is it precisely that, he, that, that, that atones for our sin? It's himself. It's, it's his life that, that he offers to God the Father as a sacrifice. And where is God? He's in heaven. He's, he's not here on earth. And so you see Jesus' ministry goes way beyond the system that these these Jewish believers were used to. It, it, it didn't fit inside it. So, kind of continuing this, this contrast with earthly priests, um, the writer goes on in verse 5. 
He says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. It's a quote from Exodus 25. Um, it, it would have been easy for the Jews to, over time, fixate on the, the structures and the institutions right, right in front of them and kind of let those things define and, and bound their imagination and forget that these things were only symbols of the greater truth that exists where God dwells. When you're looking at a, at a recreation or, or a recording of something, it's important to remember that, that what's in front of you is very, very different in scale than the real thing. Um, I remember as a kid, uh, I kind of went through phases of, of certain things I was really interested in. And for a time, I was just kind of obsessed with the, the Mount St. Helens eruption. Um, I would read books about it and, and watch videos about it. I was just fascinated with this incredible um, event that had happened. And then when I was maybe nine or ten years old, somewhere in there, my family took a trip to the actual place. And you, you can't adequately describe with words uh, standing at the visitor center and, and looking across five and a half miles in front of you at this huge crater open towards you um, and this vast space in between that's, that was just pulverized in this, this, uh, this incredible natural disaster. And I, I'm sure even that experience is not really comparable to that of many of you who actually uh, experienced it here in Yakima in 1980. Um, I've enjoyed hearing some of, some of your stories about, about the Mount St. Helens eruption, just the, the ash and the clouds and, and the, the weirdness of it all. Also, another example, uh, Stephanie and I had the opportunity a, a couple different times to travel to New York City. And I have read and, and watched um, quite a lot about the, the events of 9-11. Um, but it's, it's really not comparable to visiting the memorial in Lower Manhattan and standing on the edge of these, these two huge square uh, pools with water running into them, um, memorial pools that, that exactly outline the footprints of the two towers that fell, um, and then looking up at the New World Trade Center, and just all, from all that, getting a, a sense of the vast scale of, of what happened that day. All that to say, there's a world of difference between the reproduction and the original. Uh, between the, the shadow and the reality. The writer of Hebrews here suggests that the plans that, that God gave to Moses for the tabernacle um, were so detailed because it was supposed to actually model the throne room of God in heaven. And, and so it was really important that they get the details right. And this verse makes sense um, even more so when you realize that it's not an outlier. It's, it's part of a pattern in, in Scripture. Many 
blessings that God gives us in this life are modeled after something even better in heaven. God intends the institution of marriage to be a picture of the perfect relationship between God and his church um, in, in the next life. Um, Revelation tells us there's going to be a, a, a wedding and, and a marriage supper. God intends the institution of, of parenthood to be, among other things, a window into how God views his children. And as we talked about in, in, back in Hebrews 2, um, God gave us work as a little archetype of his own creative nature. So in, in all of these cases, it's easy to think um, that w- what we experience in this life, whatever the good thing is, is the norm or, or the standard and reason up to what heaven is or, or will be. But in fact, these blessings are derivative. Heaven is the source. We reason from heaven down to earth. In his book, uh, Letters to Malcolm, uh, C.S. Lewis put it like this, the hills and valleys of heaven will be to those you now experience, not as a copy is to an original, nor as a substitute to the genuine article, but as the flower to the root or the diamond to the coal. I can't wait to arrive one day at the the new heavens and the new earth and, and, and meet God and see the real thing that so many joys of this life uh, were just a little tiny, little tiny taste of. It'll be like, like standing on a, for, for a lifetime on an, on an ocean beach with your head stuck in an album of photos of the ocean and then finally lowering the album and seeing this vast deep blue expanse in front of you and, and smelling the salt air and hearing the gulls cry. Um, overwhelming and, and amazing and mind-blowing and also just a little bit wonderfully familiar. I imagine that's a little bit what uh, Jews who had, who had experienced the Old Testament tabernacle would have experienced upon reaching heaven and, and meeting God. What we have here in this life, it, it may be enjoyable at times, it may be valuable at times, but we can't forget what the good things what the good things come, where the good things come from and what they point to. So now the, the writer expands the perspective even further uh, a little bit in verse six. He says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises so this is a really crucial point in the book of Hebrews. The, the writer had mentioned the word covenant uh, briefly in passing in the previous chapter. 
Uh, but this is really the first time he develops the concept. So what is a covenant? Let's kind of define our term here. It, this, this can be one of those Christianese kind of theological terms that uh, we, we don't really use in everyday life, but it really just refers to a set of promises of faithfulness between two parties. A set of promises of faithfulness between two parties. Um, you see, when, when Jesus died for our sins on the cross and, and rose from the dead to defeat death, and when he advocates for us in heaven today, he's not doing this just on a kind of spontaneous, ad hoc basis. He was establishing a covenant and is now working within the framework of that covenant. And again, this is not an outlier in Scripture. Um, humanity, if you, if you look back through the Old Testament, humanity has always and only related to God through these, these sets of promises. And even when we ignore them, even when we go our own way and forsake our promises because we're sinners and that's what we do, the only way back to God is through whatever covenant he has set in place. Now, why is all this necessary? Why can't we and God just, just get along without all these rules? You know, what's, what's the big deal? Well, there are two main reasons. The first is that God is a deeply, fundamentally relational God. He, he existed in, in eternity past, in perfect, loving, intimate relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created us to, among other things, extend that relationship to. Not in a sense of equality of any kind, but, but just to, to extend that intimacy to. And that's why he didn't... Uh, create Adam and Eve, set them up in the Garden of Eden, and then, and then get up and leave. He was very intentional that they would know him and, and have intimacy with him. And intimacy requires commitment. So that's the first reason that, that God is relational. The, the second reason that God makes covenants is simply that we are sinners, we, in the Garden of Eden, we, were, we rebelled against God, and therefore we're his enemies. And we, we cannot enter his presence in our present sinful, selfish state. We, we would die on the spot. And so for us to have any kind of relationship with him any, and, and any hope of salvation beyond our sin, there has to be some some guidelines, some structure to the, to the relationship. We can't just, we can't just casually coexist with, with God. And so for these two reasons, that, that God is relational and we are sinners, he makes covenants with us. So that's the need for, for covenants in general, but, but what's the need for this, this new covenant that the writer of Hebrews talks about? Well, the end of verse 6 says, The new covenant is established on better promises. 
and it continues, for if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. So we, we see that this new covenant apparently solves some kind of problem associated with the first covenant. What does this mean? The, the, the question might arise, uh, is, is God fixing his mistake when he, when he sets up this new covenant? Um, had God been naive about human nature prior and, and didn't know that we would break every one of our promises and, and every one of the rules that he set down? Well, of course, the answer is no. You see, God gave us more than one covenant, in fact, a series of them through, throughout Scripture, precisely because he knows our nature. He knows our slowness of heart. Our, he, he knows our need to see things demonstrated exhaustively before we understand them. Um, I know this in, in my own life. There are a lot of things that God could have just told me, and in fact, oftentimes he did, whether through, through scripture or through, through other people, but they don't really hit home deep in my heart until he allows me to learn them via the long, slow road, the, the scenic route of life and, and experience. Our passage today, uh, Hebrews 8, it, it specifically references the, the covenant given to Moses. Um, like we looked at earlier, God gave this to, to Moses on Mount Sinai, but it, but it was with or, or for the, the people of Israel as a whole. And the gist of it, kind of the one-sentence summary, was that God would be present with a people obedient to his will. Presence, obedience. Presence, obedience. And God told them in meticulous detail how to obey. He, he gave them the law, uh, scrolls upon scrolls upon scrolls, uh, visualizing what holiness among humanity could look like, all based on a, on a deep inner love for God. And he set down clear consequences for their choice of, of whether or not to, to live this out. These were called blessings and curses. If they, if they lived it out, they would see the, the abundant fruit in their lives and, and the life of their nation. If they failed to live it out, the, God listed these, these terrible calamities that, that would befall them. And so, so the law was a great gift. It, it was a great gift simply in itself, but also in how we managed to live it out, which is to say we didn't. We, we ultimately couldn't. And that was, that was deliberate by God. That, that was the point. And so, verse 8, God found fault with the people and said, and here we have this, this lengthy quote from the prophet Jeremiah, who lived long after Moses. Jeremiah 31, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. 
It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. So, so what will it be like? Um, what, where is all this pointing? What is God going to do about the, the problem of, of human sin? Well, remember that a covenant is a set of promises of faithfulness between two parties. And in these, these three verses, we have four promises that God makes to his people. The first in the middle of verse 10, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. This is just incredible. Um, way back in the time of Moses, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God had said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. So God told them, put them on your hearts. Well, now God promised to put them on their hearts himself. Instead of writing them on stone tablets that he gave to Moses, he would, he, he would write them actually on, directly on the people's hearts. And this really refers ultimately to the Holy Spirit who came um, after Jesus ascended back into heaven and he, the, the, the Holy Spirit enters and indwells every person who puts their faith in, in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit changes them irre irrevocably. Um, Ephesians says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. God actually changes us from the inside out. He, he actually changes our very instincts. We come to hate what God hates and, and love what God loves. So that's the first promise. The second is the end of verse 10. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is a, a beautiful phrase that is repeated uh, many times throughout the Old Testament. And it's a promise of intimacy. This, this was, was always God's desire from the, from the very beginning when, when, he, when, when he and Adam and Eve walked together in the garden. We, we were never supposed to be disconnected from our Creator like we are now. In this new covenant, like the words of lovers, I am his and he is mine. We are his and he is ours. That's the second promise. The third promise is verse 11. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. In this new covenant, anyone can know God from, from the most powerful person to the lowliest person uh, social status, economic status, any, any kind of status doesn't matter in how or, or whether we relate to our maker. This, this would have been a really important reminder to these, these Jewish Christians who were tempted to, to miss their, their physical priests and temples and, and be tempted to think that they had it better before. Uh, no, this is a reminder that, that literally every human now had access to God. That's the third promise. The fourth and final promise. He saves the best for last. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. 
This actually reminds me of uh, one of those, those heist movies where the main character uh, sets out to, to break into some kind of stronghold that's supposedly, supposedly impenetrable and steal something valuable. And the movie doesn't completely reveal or, or how he's going to do it, or, or it leaves out some crucial element until the very end, the climax. And until then, you're left wondering, how's he going to do it? How's he going to do it? Well, the answer to the seemingly unsolvable problem of human sin is, is this. This, this is how God would break into Satan's stronghold and steal us back. It's, it's the greatest heist ever. How would he do it? He would permanently forgive our sin forever and ever because his son Jesus came down, lived a life in which he perfectly lived out our part of the covenant given to Moses, and yet he willingly received from his Father God all the covenant curses so that we could receive all the covenant blessings. So now God offers us mercy because he was merciless toward his Son. Therefore, this new covenant is sin-proof. Jesus took all of God's wrath for our sin, past, present, and future. There's nothing left to punish. So, so when you put your faith in Jesus and, and believe and trust in a sacrifice for you, you, you don't totally immediately lose your sinful, selfish old nature. But now you have another nature too, one inclined to your creator. And when you do mess up and, and act according to that old nature, as we all do, it doesn't break the covenant he may have turned his face away from the Israelites, like it says here, but he will not turn his face away from you. This is his unchangeable purpose that uh, James talked about in, in Hebrews 6. God's forgiveness is going to stand forever. God keeps his promises. There's no reason to doubt that is, that is firm, and we can trust that. We can believe that. Now, in closing, um, I just want us to consider a little bit more God's promise to write his law on our hearts. We live in a society where the right to privacy is extremely important. And when you read this verse, I mean, talk about an invasion of privacy. Um, the original Hebrew word for heart in, in the, the Jeremiah passage, it means the inner man, the, the deepest seat of the will, the intellect, and, and also the, the emotions and the passions. It means the secret place, the, the innermost center of a person. So just think of the audacity of God, the sheer audacity. His promise is to not only reach down into the most intimate part of you, your heart, but he's going to write on it. He's going to alter it. Do you want your heart altered today? Does that seem a bit forward of God? Well, first of all, your heart isn't really yours. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I have a second Lewis quote today. He said this in his book, Christian Reflections. There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second, 
is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. If God claims every square inch of the universe, he claims every square inch of your heart. And as much as you might think that you can hold back one little part or, or one little compartment of your heart, that's mine, don't touch it, God. Well, that's, that's really a delusion. Because if it's not submitted to God, it's submitted to Satan. So you choose. The truth is, God's desire is intimacy with us, his children. And if we were honest with ourselves, our deepest need, our deepest desire is intimacy with our creator. I will be their God and they will be my people. Where's your, where's your happy place? Maybe it's uh, sitting on a, on a quiet mountain lake fishing. Well, God wants to sit on that dock next to you and fish. Maybe it's uh, working on an old car in your garage, renovating an old car. Well, God wants to be there in that garage and tinker with you. Or, or maybe you're not really in a happy place right now. Maybe you are grieving, hurting, in pain. Well, God wants to sit there next to you and weep with you. Or maybe there's something, maybe there's something that you do that you know that you know God wouldn't approve of, that would make his heart sad. And you want to say, don't touch that God, that's mine. And you think that that will make you happy. Well, it won't. You're just wasting time. So let him in. Let him in. Let him clear away the garbage and shine his warm light on that dark place, on, on your whole heart. Because he's not like you. He's not like me. He makes, his, he makes promises and he keeps them. So trust him today. Let's trust Jesus today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I've just been just amazed throughout this whole study of Hebrews at how your son Jesus uh, is, is, is in, in heaven amidst all the glory and majesty and, and beauty of your presence, and yet he's not distracted from his faithfulness and care and compassion and devotion to us. I'm, I'm just so thankful um, that he is faithful to, to his covenant that he's made with me, um, even when I am not, Lord. We make promises, I make promises, and I fail to keep them. So, God, I just want to pray that you would make us more like you this week. I pray that we would love what you love and hate what you hate. Pull us close, Lord. In your good name, amen.